Did you know some travel credit cards offer 10 times points on your spending? Don't miss out on big rewards for your next trip. NerdWallet lets you compare smart travel credit cards side by side, curated by an expert team of finance nerds. What could future you do with better travel rewards? A free flight? A room upgrade? Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and more today at nerdwallet.com. Reminder, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is accelerating innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. Before they were legends of outlaw country, they were lost souls looking for their sound. Don't miss Mandy Moore and the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Hear how one woman's vision and her tiny living room, far from Nashville's Music Row, became the epicenter of a musical movement. Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in The Boar's Nest. Listen now at audible.com slash The Boar's Nest. Pushkin. James Blake has managed to distill his music down to pure emotion. His voice is transcendent, defying genre and gender in the best of the R&B tradition. Contrasted with the unsettled, off-kilter nature of his collage-style production, his sound is deeply stirring. In a word, James Blake's music is sublime. After releasing his self-titled debut album in 2011, the British-born James Blake went on to win Grammys and England's top music honor, the Mercury Prize. He's also produced and collaborated with a ton of musicians, including Jay-Z, Beyonce, Billie Eilish, and Travis Scott. James flew from England to work with Rick Rubin at Shangri-La in Malibu in 2016. They worked together on his third album, The Color in Anything. And as you'll hear in this conversation with Rick today, James Blake had a life-changing experience while working and living at Shangri-La with Jamila Jamil, who at the time was his new girlfriend. James also recalls an embarrassing experience that left him making music in secret for years and tells Rick that recording his new EP of covers solidified his love of perfect pop songs. This is Broken Record, liner notes for the digital age. I'm Justin Richmond. Just a quick note here. You can listen to all of the music mentioned in this episode on our playlist, which you can find a link to in the show notes. For licensing reasons, each time a song is referenced in this episode, you'll hear this sound effect. All right. Enjoy the episode. Here's Rick Rubin and James Blake live from Shangri-La. 
Talk about from from the first album, like from making things. How did it start, and um, what was your process? Because I imagine it's evolved over time. Yeah. First album. Let's start with the first. Well, the album. first album. I think everything started from. In fact, very often I would just sing into the mic, and then I would remix the vocal. Essentially, so like, my brother and my sister. Yeah. So that one was just I sang it into the mic, as a free floating vocal. Uh, no music behind it, and and then I built the entire production around that one vocal. And I, if I remember correctly, it doesn't change. Is it all I think one? I was going to say, is it all one vocal phrase that just gets stacked and yes, changed, harmonized yes. in different ways? Pretty sure it's one vocal phrase. Wow! Uh, we listen to that. Let's sh- let's listen sure, to that just to sure. Incredible! It's incredible. Thanks, man. It's ridiculous. I was just thinking as I was listening to that, since your first album came out, I've not been introduced to any artist since that I've liked more than you since that time. That's so sweet of you to say. Thank it's you. the truth. It's Thank like you. N- n- nobody close. Like, it's my favorite music. It's Thank my favorite you. Music. That's an unbelievable uh, accolade and compliment. Thank you. It's unlike anything. It's so original and so musical and so seemingly awkward <laughs> yet so musical mm. it, it doesn't make sense doesn't make sense for it to be as groovy as it is for the pieces to come together that se- that really seem like they don't fit together yeah they really didn't seem they that really don't seem like, like they fit together then, it felt like i mean i haven't heard that in six or seven years and it felt really strange yeah like but in the best way like yeah. like it, it, you're surprised by the changes yeah because no one other than you would have made those changes. I wouldn't even have made those changes now. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's the thing is that my, you know, the things that surprise me now are different. Yeah. So obviously the sound of my music's changed, but, but I, and I, and I know I could never go back and do the same thing. Yes. But once you've kind of um, bottled something, there's no need to, no. Carry, to, to do it again. But I, but I, when I listen to it, I'm like, makes me think of what I was and who I was then. I almost, it's almost like I took that vocal and I flew it to like 50 different countries and put a different backdrop on it. Yes. And it's thrilling. And it's really fun. It's, it's thrilling. Like I, and listening back to it, I'm like, oh, that's, you know. Yeah, it's really I got good. It, I, got it, I, I got something right. I, yeah, I really, yeah. f- that felt, because it's actually unusual to listen back to something you of did course. before and, go, and, and feel like it's still p- kind of weirdly perfect, even though it's, kind of crazy yes Yes. and as Um, you said you 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 wouldn't make the same choices today but hearing it it's super cool i'm glad i did yeah glad that it's glad that (laughs) it's in the world yeah i'm really glad i did it's actually really kind of sweet to listen to this stuff because there wouldn't be another time i would do this and it's and it's kind of re-engaging almost like revisiting like a cellular structure that i had before yes so tell me about how how did you make that what do you remember about it? And what do you remember about yourself then? I would have been in my university uh, housing. and um, What school did you go to? Uh, it was Goldsmiths College. And I was incredibly, I would say, reclusive. I would say I was very angry, I think, and very lonely. And I, didn't have a, I wasn't in a relationship. I'd never been in one. I was super sort of, uh, there was no reason for me really to go out anywhere. So I just stayed in my, in my house. I remember being extremely highly emotional at that time. 
I was listening to Blue by Joni Mitchell every night before I went to sleep. And I listened to Bon Iver, um, Forever, Forever Ago, every night. And I would just sleep to that music. And then I'd wake up and I'd feel creative and I'd just make, make things. Um, I'd make music well into the night. And what I was normally doing is singing a vocal. I had this CAD mic and it was, you know, cheap and I had a, a little Firefox sound card and a, and a MacBook and, I, and a MIDI controller and that was it. And I just sang a couple of vocals. And then what I would do is get the, uh, the massive plugin and I would just, I'd initialize the patch so it was just a saw wave. And I would make it a sine wave and I would just play it like an organ. And what keyboard were you driving it? With? I was using a, just a little MIDI keyboard, like a M audio thing or like a Novation, I think. And so it was literally something that any student would have. I mean, you know, if they were, yeah. If they, if they wanted to make If they music, wanted to do be, that, then that's th- what there you was no, the, the barrier of entry was very low. Yes. For what you were doing. Yes. In terms of like, in terms of the, in, within the context of, you know, because I was lucky to even be able to afford that at the time. Um, my parents bought me a MacBook uh, for college, and I just, that was what I went with. And, and um, so I was lucky to have that. But, uh, and um, I would find different ways to harmonize the vocal. So what be- ended up becoming sort of my trademark or even my biggest tool was what I ended up kind of developing out of necessity, which was, to take a melody and to almost in a sort of Bach or, you know, kind of um, in a classical type sense is just take a melody and reharmonize until I find the thing that feels good. By that point, I'd, I've been playing piano since I was six years old. So th- this came naturally to me to tr- try and, but it was more about placing an emotion within the, the vocal with a chord. So each, each voc- each emotional moment had its own chord, you know. So you didn't you didn't learn that though. You you, I mean, you learned that yourself. Yeah, I you I figured it out over time. I figured it out over time. Yeah, I, I sort of um, it it was my way of creating something new out of something that was that felt mundane because ultimately, you know, like a, a vocal unaccompanied, if it's not a great melody, and I wasn't an inspired melody writer. So I just kind of tried to make, you know, cause I know, I know people who have the gift of just being melodically supreme. And when people can do that, that's fantastic, but I wasn't able to do that. So what I did was try and find it in other ways by harmonizing it differently so that it seemed like an incredible melody <laughs> to me. Yes. Um, I I'm think gonna, the most, I'm going to request that we get, could we ask for a little keyboard to be sent down just so that sure. as you're talking, you could, demonstrate what Totally, you're yeah. That'd yeah. be really helpful. One thing I realized pretty early on was a, a melody that, you know, the more I listened to it, the less special it became to me. But if I reharmonized it, then it was exciting again. So, so to reharmonize a melody um, and also to work within, you know, a lot of the chord clusters would happen because I was working with usually quite a small MIDI controller. So I wasn't working with the whole range. So actually, you know, how to get the most out of, I don't know, you know, two octaves is, was important too. There's multiple parts in that, in that I never learned to share, but none of them are all like that, that like, stre- you know, hands stretched. It's all, um, uh, you know, like just 
within this range and then I'd place that part and then you'd have another part that was a bass and another part that's at the top. Which would all be the same keyboard, just chain, you just change your position. A lot of the time I'm just, press, yeah, just octave down and so, but, you know, it was a bit, I think it was a three octave, um, but if I was feeling particularly uninspired <laughs> and there was just, you know, there's so many ways of arriving and leaving and so... And very would, boring would you melody work on them in specific order for a song or would you record doing a lot of that and then chop it up i'd record a lot of that and then i'd sample myself yeah. basically and that's what happened with um as soon as you hear it you're like that and i remember you being like that so that's where we <laughs> that's where we went it's amazing <laughs> it's just amazing to see you do that and um and I'm glad that you've come to recognize that what you do is not what is not what other people do, so that right. you can continue to do it. You know, right. I, I feel like the more you try to do what anyone else does, yeah. the less interesting. Oh, it's I've done. Be. I've been there, man. I've been yeah. there. I've, I've, you know, for the years after the color and anything, I was trying to chase the the genius of other people. You know, people I've worked with, people who've influenced me, people who have seemed to be you know just based on my own down opinion on myself we're just so much high you know a higher level of something that i couldn't do or whatever and i think i just have to get over that and get through it and i think you know by the time i'd done assume form i'd kind of assume form the reason i decided to make that record wasn't because i needed to make a record it was because i needed to get away from the idea that i had to write music in a in a way other than my under my own and I finally got sick of waiting for other people, sick of, I was working on other projects and other things and people were wasting my time. And, and I realized, I, re I had a moment of uh, realization, I I'm me, <laughs> I can do whatever the fuck I want. Yes. Why am I waiting? Yes. Why am I idolizing other people? Why am I, I can already do a thing, yes. you know, do the thing that I love, like yes. why? Um, torture myself like that and because um, you know working with other artists is amazing but some you know I think it, it at a formative time in my career put too much weight on what some other people thought and and too much kind of involvement in in them and, and I don't know what I expected from them I maybe I expected too much or whatever but I think it was a reflection on where I was at the time but it ended up throwing me really severely off course musically and I feel like I'm finding assume form and and where i'm at now has been me finding my feet uh and kind of going fuck everyone else i'm sure about this yeah and uh, and i and i'm sure of myself and i and i i'm comfortable in my skin uh musically and the the amount of voices that are going on in the back of my head when i'm making music now i could have not been able to count them before i mean it was it was intense um, and it ruined my process for a while, but now it's, it, it feels relatively quiet in there. And, and I think it's a big part of why I made this before EP, because I wasn't thinking about, oh, am I going to be judged if I sing over dance music or, you know, if I combine those two worlds and I'm not going to be, you know, in my thinking, part of it was, well, there could be some people who, think this is a bastardization of dance music or it's a bastardization of songwriting or it's it's 
you know, are the song structures perfect? Like, I, I don't know. The, the point is, songs like I Keep Calling on this EP are kind of like the modern, in a way, that's my modern dance music Neverland share. It's a, it's a weird structure, but it hits my, it, it hits a part of me and it, and it, it seems somehow solid, even though it seems like it's just about being held together. Honestly, Rick, it's been such a long, <laughs> long fucking journey to that feeling. And, and yeah. uh, it's nice to be able to say that to you. Yes, today. I appreciate it. Let's, let's listen to that song. Yeah, sure. We'll be back with more of James Blake's conversation with Rick Rubin after a quick break. Reboot your credit card with Apple Card, the only credit card designed for iPhone. It gives you up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase. Plus, Apple Card has no fees, not even hidden ones. Apply for Apple Card now in the Wallet app on iPhone. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Variable APRs for Apple Card range from 19.24% to 29.49% based on credit worthiness. Rates as of February 1st, 2024. Terms and more at AppleCard.com. Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over 6 million active hourly workers, Snag a job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs on demand, attempt to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position, warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello, Malcolm Gladwell here from Revisionist History. If you've watched a professional tennis match recently, you'll know that fans had this amazing new tool at their disposal. It was created by the consulting company Infosys and the Association of Tennis Professionals. It's an immersive 3D viewing experience for tennis fans, which allows them to watch matches from new angles, get real-time statistics, and better understand the inner workings of the game and its athletes. Basically, a completely new, data-driven way to appreciate a tennis match. It's been a huge hit, and I'm proud to say that the Infosys Tennis Platform earned first place in the Customer Experience category at the Unconventional Awards from T-Mobile for Business, an event held at Mobile World Congress in Las Vegas that celebrates customers who've boldly innovated for the sake of meaningful change. And I think it's important to point out that innovation like this doesn't just require a great idea and exploit some great underlying technology. It takes courage. Because tennis is a game with a long history and some pretty powerful traditions. I mean, you can only wear white at Wimbledon. Still, it's the 21st century. And here was an idea that said we can dramatically change the way a fan watches a match. We can feed them data. We can allow them to see things they could never see before with the naked eye, or even conventional camera angles. If you want to turn a world upside down, you have to have a pretty strong backbone. 
That's a lot of what the T-Mobile for Business unconventional awards are all about. Finding people and companies who show that kind of boldness. I encourage you to enter. It's a fantastic event and a great way to be recognized for your brave, outside-the-box thinking in front of the industry's most influential leaders. And an even better way to say, I told you so. You can enter by July 31st at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. We're back with Rick Rubin and James Blake. Was the household you grew up in musical? Yeah. I mean, my dad uh, is a musician and he was always playing music and, you know, my mum and him, it was, you know, singing in the car and doing three-part harmonies in the car on the way to, like, going on holiday and stuff like that. So, because we would drive to holiday, I mean, we'd go on holiday to, you know, Wales or the beach. Uh, and when I say the beach, it's really just a, a kind of um, a gallery of rocks uh, in England, but that's what we call the beach. So, we'd, on the way down, maybe we'd go camping in Pembrokeshire or something. I actually saw a bunch of, like, UFOs. At, it's, it, there's the thing called the Pembrokeshire Triangle, which is uh, a bit like the Bermuda Triangle, um, except a lot less cool. <laughs> and um, we went there uh, quite a bit and we'd go camping and I sort of learned how to sing, really, in a, in a way, through doing that. I, I learned how to harmonise, especially. How to slot in between two other notes or yeah. how to, you know, how to follow a top line or, how, you know, those things really came from my parents. What would be the songs that you would sing in the car? God, I can't, I can't remember. Isn't she lovely? I can't, I can't really, I can't really remember. Maybe Stevie Wonder songs, or Sitting on the Dock of the Bay, or some Crosby, Stills and Nash songs. I remember like Our House was one that we used to sing a lot. Um, and would those be the songs that would be playing in your house, like that your parents? Yeah, would be listening and to? so they'd sing it in the car on the way down, and okay. or, or maybe it would be, but Happy Birthday. Like every year to this day, my parents will call me and sing Happy Birthday in harmony. Beautiful. Like, it's just what they do. And uh, the only drawback is that they can't have a third because otherwise I'd be singing Happy Birthday to myself. But that <laughs> is uh, a very cute thing that they do. And you said you started playing piano when you were six. Did, yeah. you, did you take formal lessons? Uh, I did lessons from, yeah, around that age. My dad asked me if I wanted to play a guitar or piano or anything. Uh, and I said, I'll play guitar. And he was like, well, I can, get, I can teach you that. So pick something else and I started piano lessons and I never really looked back and also I I don't think me and my dad were compatible as a student teacher relationship I think we were better as just you know father son so and did you learn classical music yeah I did all the grade I, you know I did grade eight or whatever and I could have carried on and done my diploma and etc but I didn't I just sort of ended with that and said said goodbye to the academic side of music because I just wasn't that interested but it did give me a, a great backbone but you know and I wasn't a very good sight reader so if you don't develop sight reading very well then it's hard to want to approach a new piece of classical music with with sheet music because the the journey to getting to just playing some fucking notes is so hard if you're not good at that uh, that I gave up and I just wanted to improvise. And the whole time I'd just been learning to improvise myself. So it would go, James, do your practice. I go downstairs, play, 
play for, you know, I try and learn this piece for, I don't know, 15 minutes and I'd give up and then I'd just improvise for 45 minutes. And so they could see that I was just way more inclined and way more excited about improvising. And that's kind of what I've based my career on, really, is improvising. I've always just improvised and then edited. Would you always improvise solo or might you put on a, a piece of music and play along and improvise? There was this funny, embarrassing moment. I was, I was always I was playing with these kids up the street. We were, we were uh, playing tennis uh, regularly and I became friends with one of them. And uh, we lived four doors down from them. And so I could see their garden because we live in these like semi-detached whatever houses and terraced houses in, in England. So from my bedroom, I could see over the fences and he was in his garden. I remember I was playing, I would play to records every night. So I'd come home from school and I just set up, I'd put a CD on and I'd just play piano and sing to the records with a mic. This was by the time I was like 14, 15. And, um, I think I was playing, uh, <laughs> like I was playing records that kids my age thought were really sad. That as in, were really un- completely uncool. Yeah. Uh, what's the song? Um, it's an amazing song. Whitney Houston's song. Uh, children are a future. Teach them well and let them lead the way. That song, unbelievable song. But anyway, so I'm just, I'm belting this song at top of my voice playing uh, like an electronic, like 80s uh, Rhodes type sound, um, like MIDI Rhodes. And then I hear a bunch of kids laughing and they're going, I can't remember what they were saying, but they were basically heckling me from four, four like houses away. And it was honestly one of the most embarrassing moments of my whole, like one of the more embarrassing moments. Because I remember like, it was like my whole friend, one of my whole friendship groups were there. And I was like, crippled after that because i was just like this other people see this as a as a really effeminate and you know like effeminate and and sad lonely thing to do they look at me as in some way kind of a weird weirdo for like just wanting to do this and also potentially there were homophobic undertones to like their abuse the heckling and i was just like this is this is crazy. This is the thing I love doing. How can I be, firstly, a man and also like them? That doesn't make sense. <laughs> you know, like I can't be, I can't be myself and like them. So I've, I must be, I must be different. And I, and, and this, I need to, sh- I need to keep away from other people. I need to make sure that no one sees me or hears me doing this. So it was kind of funny in a way. Like when I look back on it, it's kind of a funny story. But then at the same time, at the time, it didn't feel funny. It felt like really shameful. Yeah. Um, because at the time, like I said, there was so much toxic masculinity. You know, it was all about like being sporty and being, you know, and I was just this kind of kid who wanted to sing to Whitney Houston songs in my bedroom. Uh, <laughs> and like Mariah Carey, I was like obsessed with Music Box. You know, all these singers who were super expressive. And, and there's me you know, with the, I mean, you know, super like Ross Geller, like with my little keyboard and my mic and like trying to, and, and so I just, you know, I think it started off that weird moment, weirdly, probably stopped me from wanting to show my musical ability to anyone. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't really play. I remember being, you know, I'd go into practice rooms and I'd just not, 
I'd not let anyone come and hear me. I would just go in. I'd, I'd make sure no one was around, and I'd go in on my own after school, and I'd make sure no one could hear me, and and, and I would just express. I'd just play, Did improvise. Did you ever play for your sing. parents? No, not a lot. I mean, I did a bit, but not a lot. I would play with them in the other room, mm-hmm. and they would be the only ones that were sort of allowed to hear me, even from the other room. But I was very ashamed, I think, looking back. I mean, I've not really ever talked about this, but I was very ashamed of, of playing because I felt that it undermined my sort of ability to interface with other kids, really. Weird to think that it should be something I would have felt ashamed of when I would imagine... You'd have thought that it would have been something that people thought was cool, right? Singing and playing. I, I don't think. know. I, I would think that, but that's just not how pe- people reacted. Kid, so kids much. are weird, though. Yeah, I mean, kid, anything kids, that makes yeah, you any, different is... Yeah, any excuse yeah. to... To, to be honest, they probably thought I was just annoying, which I was. <laughs> um, and the, you know, the, the, the way of actually articulating that was, you're sad for playing these songs. But, but actually, yeah, I, I think it was a while... And so maybe that even followed me into not feeling fully confident to put my music, to put my voice on my music. Um, I don't know. I mean, there's lots of embarrassing moments like that that would have led to that. So it wasn't just that. But, you know, if you have a, if you have a turbulent childhood, you can really spend at least up into your 30s to, to unpack what happened and why you feel shame around certain things and why, you know. And um, it was definitely this whole... You know, these four albums have been me unpacking everything in real time and showing my workings, really. Do you remember the first time you sang in front of people on purpose? Yeah, I was terrified. But I remember that this girl really liked it and said and told her friend that she fancied me. How old were you at the time? I was about 14. Yeah. That was the first time I thought, this is, this is okay now. Yeah. This is cool. When did you know that you were going to do this for your life? Like this was going to be the focus of your life? I think I always thought it would be pretty much. uh, I didn't ever think I would get a different job. I mean, even when you were ashamed mm, of it and doing it in your room by yourself, you felt like this is what I'm going to do. Yeah, because I thought, well, they're not ashamed. All these artists are making all this music. So someone's not ashamed of it. Yes. I'm ashamed of it. Yes. And when, as soon as I'm out of this fucking shithole yes. that I'm bo- I was born in yes. and that all these people are judging me in, yes. I'm fucking out of here and I'm going to show everyone that this isn't shameful and yes. that this is worthwhile and that I was actually pretty good at it. And so, fuck you all. <laughs> you know, I'm going to go into this room here where no one is and work on that silently until I get the opportunity to get out of here. Amazing. Beautiful story. Thanks. I definitely spent too long, though, because, you know, after, after you want to prove yourself, it's like that feeling doesn't, doesn't go away uh, naturally. So long after you need to prove yourself, you're still trying to prove yourself. Yeah. And I think that is, that's what you're chipping at. That, that's the thing I, I've been chipping away at, is that, that need to prove that I can do something. I mean, I, I've, I've proven that, you know, I don't need to anymore while you don't need to do that anymore if it's driving you making great music yeah it's a it's worth the price yeah in a way in a way yeah i've debated that uh with myself over the years of of you know where was was the music worth the pain and there have been times when i've said no 
and that I would have taken it all back um, fully. Yeah. Yeah, because I think, you know, until you develop who you are outside of music and you develop your sort of raison d'etre outside of it, then um, it can feel that when it's taken away, it removes your purpose as a human being. So therefore, you might as well not be here. And that's, that's where I got to during The Colour in Anything almost. You know, before I came here, that's where I was. Because I thought, well, if I can't do this, then what can I do? Yeah. What's the point in me being here? There's no point. Which is obviously a very unhealthy thought, but, it's, but it was because I hadn't worked on any of my relationships or my friendships or, my, or myself... I'd only worked on music at that point. So it was like, well, if this thing isn't working and I've got a block on this, then I'm fucked. And I was fucked. Um, and so from the point of being fucked, um, it was a, a long road to unfucking myself, as Russell Brown would put it. <laughs> How do you describe the difference um, from, the f- from the first album to the second album? From the first to the second, well, the second had more pressure on it by quite a long stretch and I don't you know I don't shy away from pressure um but the song the first time you had to deal with it though Mm -hmm. really that was the first so I kind of didn't really understand it in a way I wasn't really I didn't really feel afraid because I was like well this has never happened to me before so this is all brand new anyway so I might as well just react to what's happening I'm not I wasn't consumed yet with what people thought of me because I was already, I was doing well. And I thought, well, I'll just continue doing that, right? And people will like it again. Um, so I did. And, but, you know, the, the song for that record, i.e. Retrograde, didn't really come to me until probably the second from last thing I wrote in a, like, three-year period. It actually was touch and go, really. Because if that song hadn't been on the record, I don't think people would have bought it. <laughs> You know, it was it was by far and away the standout song in, in terms of people's... I think people bought it because they liked the first album. Yes. But then Retrograde was the one that they talked about. Right. And it, and had, had that not been on there, I think it would have been harder to convince people that I'd evolved mm. and that I was getting better at my craft, you know? Because I think the rest of it is fairly... I mean, it's more put together than the first one, but it's like, I think some of that album is caught in a middle ground between complete collage and song. So, you know, it needed that song with a real backbone, even though it's not a conventional structure, it needed that song with a real backbone to, to pop out and, and, and grab people. So, but yeah, I think, you know, that's, by that time I'd, I'd been in my first relationship as well, um, which changed things and I had more to write about. Um, I wasn't just writing about being uh, a lonely virgin anymore (laughs) and uh you know there was some level of account accountability from that as well you know like just starting to realize that i actually affect other people and they affect me yeah i would say even even the songs rooted in collage are i think it's such a big part of what you do Mm -hmm. that a good collage from you is every bit as compelling as someone else's good song oh that's nice to hear yeah, uh, I think it's 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 is it's really I think that's your your mastery is of that. Well, I definitely I would I'd say I got into the habit of thinking of it as weaker, and uh, so it's nice to hear you say that. I think it might be your superpower. 
<laughs> well, I think it's the superpower I didn't want. Yeah. I think it's, you know, it's, 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 I think that's, if it is that, I think that's the case for a lot of people. I think we're assigned, uh, yeah, yeah, it's like, give me invisibility. Like, I don't want, <laughs> I don't want the ability to uh, make a collage. <laughs> um, but I'd say two years ago, if I could have chosen, I would have taken um, strong pop songwriting as my, as a power over what I have. Yes. And I'm so glad you didn't get that choice. Yeah, me too. <laughs> And actually now I'd say I'm happy with what I have. Great. You know, I'd say that Great. I'm I'm excited to see what that yields in the future because I think it's nice to think that you can do something after all these years to look look at what you do and go, oh no, it's it's naturally evolved over all this time. And and if if I hadn't have been me, then uh, it would have never got off the ground. Maybe none of it would have got off the ground. And And it's like finding money down the back of the sofa. It's like, you know, oh. Still got that, <laughs> you know. Oh, I've found this ability that I've got to do this thing that is actually kind of unusual. We'll be right back with more from James Blake. Snag a job is where America goes to hire, with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring. With access to over six million active hourly workers, Snag a Job is the all-in-one solution for hiring high-quality employees who can cover all your needs: on-demand, temp to hire, part-time or full-time. You name the position: warehouse worker, retail associate, grocery store clerk, fitness trainer, baker, stylist, bellhop, podcast producer. Yeah, Snag a Job's got a worker for that. With their easy-to-use platform, you're able to seamlessly post and fill available positions quickly with a dedicated customer support team to provide all the help you need along the way. Kind of nice knowing you have a talent pool like that in your own backyard, right? Snagajob is the partner you need to keep your business running smoothly. Visit snagajob.com or text snag to 242-424 to talk to an expert. Snagajob.com, where America goes to hire. Hello, hello. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. Let me tell you an unconventional story about a healthcare group that wanted to improve their efficiency. Boston Children's Hospital. They were already a leading pediatric facility. Their patient outcomes, workflows, and delivery of care were already great. But they wondered, how can we make it better? So the hospital got to work. Their idea was to build what they called clinical mobility meaning a system which would allow their staff to access information and interact with patients on mobile devices anywhere in the hospital. And what made that possible? 5G. The hospital rebuilt their entire system with 5G technology at its core. That infrastructure now supports thousands of phones and tablets so practitioners can communicate with patients on a whole new level. Boston Children's also made sure the system could flex and scale to handle medical advancements like robotic surgery and virtual reality for training and research. This was worlds away from how they had previously operated. This innovative work hasn't gone unnoticed, first by patients, but also by their peers. Boston Children's was a first place winner in the industry category at last year's unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business an event that celebrates customers who've dared to innovate for the sake of innovation. If the Boston Children's story rings a bell with you, if your team has asked the same questions about building a better business solution, 
I encourage you to enter this year's awards. It's a great way to be recognized for smart, disruptive thinking in front of some of your industry's most influential leaders. You can enter at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. That's tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. I'll save you a seat. Willie Nelson, Waylon Jennings, Chris Christopherson. How did the biggest names in outlaw country start a musical revolution? Through one woman's vision from one tiny living room. Don't miss Mandy Moore as Sue Brewer in the new scripted Audible original, The Boar's Nest, Sue Brewer and the birth of outlaw country music. Discover the true untold story of the extraordinary woman behind the outlaw country music movement and its biggest stars. Brewer helped shape the sound and soul of country music as we know it today, despite never picking up an instrument herself. Lovingly dubbed The Boar's Nest, Sue's Place was an intimate staging ground where a new breed of singer-songwriters, wounded souls, wayward upstarts, would spur each other on to tap into something bigger, realer. Starring Mandy Moore and featuring Eben Moss Bacharach as Shel Silverstein and TJ Osborne as Johnny Cash, alongside a full ensemble cast. Audible invites you to enter the Boar's Nest and experience the rise of a musical revolution. One woman, one time, one place. The Boar's Nest. Sue Brewer and the birth of Outlaw Country Music. Listen now at audible.com slash the Boar's Nest. We're back with James Blake talking to Rick Rubin about moving to L.A. full time and also about putting his live show together with friends and bandmates Rob McAndrews and Ben Asseter. Are you living out here full time now? I am, yeah. You know, it's funny, since I, since I came to Shangri-La, I didn't leave. Really? I, I flew over here like I was in such a bad way. And I remember, you know, telling you about a lot of that stuff. And when I was in England, I think I just had this idea that I was just going to stay there. And, you know, it's very English of me, but just to, to kind of, you know, stay and suffer. Yeah, and um, I, uh, Jamila sort of put me on a plane, basically, Fantastic. and because she was already going, and I was like, "Yeah, I'll come with you." And but she'd been in LA, and I was staying in England and just getting stuck, essentially. And then uh, so, and then she she brought me over, and the first thing I did was come here, pretty much, and she came and stayed with me, and we basically fell in love here. So that moment, th- those like four months were like you know, for us, kind of like a summer holiday thing. And, you know, it was it was up and down, but ultimately we may not have had that time again because, you know, after I left Shangri-La, she ended up getting really busy and I got really busy. And so we, the, it was really formative being here. Amazing. Um, and, I, and, I, and I didn't pack much stuff. I just came here and then... I was like, I'm never, I realized I'm, I'm not going back. It was a very, it was a moment of real clarity. I was like, I'm, I, I, am, I don't know if I'm ever going to live there again. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. And I, I want to just fly my stuff over. Like, yeah, I don't even want to go back to interesting, get it. It's interesting when it hits you. Yeah. The reality of, oh, I'm not going back. Yeah. I can remember, you, you talked about ups and downs, and I can remember there was one time, when there was something going on relationship-wise that was heavy, and we watched that video yeah. about nonviolent communication, I remember it, it really yeah. reached you. It was huge. That moment was huge, and I wanted to thank you actually 
oh, in person because I because I haven't really you know the, things have gone in so many different directions for the both of us, but we haven't really seen each other since um, those sessions. Uh, but I wanted to thank you because that moment was instrumental in our relationship, but also just in general for me. It was the Marshall Rosenberg nonviolent communication thing, and and learning after a lifetime of of basically just accusatory language, you know, of just saying, well, if I feel this way, then it must be, you know, you did this and you did that, and that's why I feel like this. And actually, to be able to do away with that kind of language and 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 speak from a place of feeling and non-accusatory language. I, th- I recommend that now to everyone I come across Beautiful. who's in a relationship or just even who wants to change the way they work with the world. It's, it's massive. It, it like changed the way I produce as well. Like the way I'm, I am makes you more approachable. You can roll with the punches much easier. Things tend not to go sour relationships that, you know, with people who are more like that are much more likely to work because you can come to a middle ground. And so, I mean, yeah, not only did it fix that particular problem at the time in my relationship, but also just had so many knock-on effects. So thank you. Fantastic. I've done a lot of growing up. um, And I think actually the, uh, like the kind of anything, the record we worked on together was so much a coming of age record really i don't know if coming of age means a certain age but for me that was you know i was 26 uh, or 25 and you know coming into the what they call the saturn was it the saturn returns or whatever Mm. and yeah i it was i mean that is that is a complex album it's a it's a dense kind of forest in my mind when i when i look back at that music i do a little bit feel sorry for you for having had to sit while I, you know, I mean, have you ever watched The Crystal Maze? No. We had this game show in the UK where basically there's a team of people, like four of them or multiple of them are, are outside the maze, basically being able to communicate with the person that is in the maze. And so there's one person going through the maze, but they don't see, everyone else sees it from the bird's eye view and they only see it from inside the maze. So they're like, no, 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 go left, go left. I feel like that's what that record was. I feel like you were the, pe- you were the people outside the maze and I was in the maze trying to get the fuck out of it, making all the wrong turns. But I think, you know, I, I did get out of it in the end, but it's like, as a producer, how do you see that kind of situation? Is it a challenge? Is it a personal challenge? Is it a musical challenge? Or is it's it- just, it's just, part and parcel of the job it's part of the job is yeah. um it's as much about having an instinct about the music as as an instinct of how to deal with the emotions going on in the room and people and where people are in their lives yeah and and it's so different and and you'd think it has something to do with age but it really doesn't right and i've seen at both ends of the spectrum i've seen very young artists who are attached to some ideas that are not helpful to them mm-hmm. And are unwilling to let go of them because they, mm-hmm. because of in their limited view, they think that that thing that they're not willing to let go of is the reason they've gotten as far as they've gotten. That's right. That's one version. Mm-hmm. And then I've seen, you know, I, I've worked with, you know, 70 year old greatest artists in the world. Yeah. And um, 
they still seem lost. It's, it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's, unbelie- you know, it's mm-hmm. unbelievable at both ends. But mm-hmm. then they're, and then you you meet people who are just completely comfortable with themselves, comfortable with the process. Mm-hmm. There's no rules. You know, it really is different mm-hmm. every every one. And you must get it. As, I mean, you get to work with a lot of people and you see it's it's completely different every time. It is. And I noticed that when, when as a producer, I think with my producer hat on, coming to work at Shangri-La and, and working with you was huge for for learning how to adapt to those situations because I'd put someone in that situation myself, <laughs> you know? Like I, I can look back on moments of coming into the studio and just not wanting to work. You know, we, we were here for months. So there were days when I just couldn't work. I was just catatonic almost, like I could barely even speak. Most people can hide that if they're only going to the studio for like a day or two, few sessions in a week. Um, but when you're going through something and you're just going in every day and you're staying at the studio, then you can't really hide it as well. It's like being in Big Brother or something like a reality TV show. It's like you can hold it up for, hold up the facade for a while, but at some point, everybody's seeing you every day, like all the engineers, the assistants, the, you know, you, like at some point you break. I think what it showed me was how to accommodate somebody's, their actual real life. And, and the fact that their real life is what they're drawing from and to not take that for granted, it's actually really heavy, some of the shit people go through to actually what they put into this music. And so you can't always think about music, basically. And then it can't always only be about the music because ultimately, if you don't have any ability to listen to them about the other stuff, then what are you? really as a producer there's also the um i imagine it's different for you as i think of you primarily as an artist who's a producer right but maybe that's just because that's the way i came in contact with you as as an artist first no i think you're probably right yeah you're and probably, i, I probably imagine right. that adds another layer of complexity to it mm-hmm. because you always would know what you would do as an artist mm-hmm. but what you would do as an artist might not always be what's best them as an artist Mm -hmm. so being the producer for them is different than yeah being an artist collaborating with them as an as another artist yeah to be able to have some distance and to maintain that uh clarity and and objectivity is is much easier when you're not thinking about your you know this outpouring all the time and 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 actually a little bit like you know, when people say that once they're in a safe relationship, all, all, the, all their stuff rises to the top. When you're starting like an album campaign, or sorry, an album uh, recording, and you don't know where it's going to go, and you're just, you know, you're trying to find, or at least I'm trying to find the real feelings and the, and the you know, what it is I want to say, you're likely to stumble on some landmines emotionally because they're there and and it part of the the uh the process of trying to heal yourself for musicians in some way um at least temporarily is is to step on them (laughs) so you know i think i stepped on a few while i was here (laughs) that's why it's so therapeutic yeah the the process of making music is Mm -hmm. so healing both for the person making the music and for the listener yeah you know there's some there's something inherent in it even when someone's singing about something terribly painful Mm -hmm. and there's no resolution in the song Mm -hmm. 
that has a healing feeling for mm-hmm. someone who's also feeling that because you resonate on a human level of I'm not alone. You know, yeah. like, th- this is a real, yeah. we're in this together, even though yeah. we don't know each other. Yeah, that's right. I, I actually think that for me, the allure of producing probably grew greater after I worked with you just because I saw that there was a way of stepping back. You know, I think being uh, so in it all the time, just in the emotional trenches, it's just, it's hard and and it takes a toll. It, it, in a way it's healing, but then it also takes a toll and the people around you are constantly subjected to it. You're not the same, basically. And it, it is ultimately a fairly self-absorbed thing. So I think my fear uh, as someone who, you know, got into music, in, I, I mean, I was touring by the time I was 21, you know, and, and like I'd, I was starting to DJ, starting to play live and everything became about me. And I'm the solo artist, I'm the front man, I'm the, you know, the person who does the interviews, I'm what people are trying to get answers out of. And I think at a certain point, when I realized that that was having a negative effect on people around me, I almost became allergic to the idea of going to that place where everything's about me again. And so the idea of going to a studio and having everybody like, you know, having people getting the food, getting the, you know, going to like, even just turning knobs for me (laughs) on the desk, you know, or people asking me, you know, what are your thoughts on how this is good? You know, this album being about my emotions in some way felt selfish. Self-indulgent. Self-indulgent, yeah. And selfish because ultimately, you know, people around me's lives would change if I went and just stayed in a, stayed in a, sorry, in a studio for a month or maybe let some of my responsibilities go a little bit because I was so absorbed in the music. And, and so I think I became a bit afraid of that. And I think producing was a way to transition out of that thing and um, ultimately be able to just go home, clock out. Um, and I noticed that when I was here, one of the things that always struck me as like, initially it struck me as odd, but then I realized it was fucking great, um, is that you would always clock out at like seven o'clock. So we'd work from 12 till seven and then you'd be out and you'd be having dinner with your wife. I always thought, but what, what if, what if something amazing happens after seven o'clock, you know? And, but that's me being so absorbed in it that I think that that's more amazing than having dinner. <laughs> it's not, you know. And now I realise that it's not more amazing. Firstly, it's not more amazing than having dinner. Secondly, it's important to have your boundaries. And it's just so much harder to have your boundaries when it's your music. And, there, you know, let, me, let me say two things about that, or yeah. things to think about about that. The first one is, it's different for an artist who does a deep dive into a window of time making an album, mm-hmm. Let, let's say it's several months of mm-hmm. total dedication to nothing else. Mm-hmm. So you've done that four times over the course of your life. Mm-hmm. I do that every day, all the time for the last 30 <laughs> something years, yeah. you know, hundreds of times. Yeah. So for me, it's different because if there's no breaks on a daily basis, then there's no breaks in my life ever at all. And yeah. I And I do feel like, and I learned this the hard way, is that I probably spent 25 years of my life in dark rooms with no windows, often past the point of productivity. Yes. Out of some other other thought of thinking I was going to miss something. Mm -hmm. 
which I don't believe I did, considering the fact that if work is still going on and something good happens, mm-hmm. I get to hear it the next day when I come in. Yeah, so e- like, yeah e- it's so true. Either way. Yeah. Um, the other the other part of it is that that's in terms of the, the personal balance side. Yeah. Then in terms of the having perspective, mm-hmm. being able to step away, or even better, getting to work on something else mm-hmm. and then coming back mm-hmm. really changes your relationship to it. Yeah. You're hearing it closer to the way other people are going to hear it. Mm-hmm. Other people don't get to hear it. Mm-hmm a million times in a row mm-hmm. before they even decide if it's done or yeah. if they like it. Yeah, It's another thing I've, I've learned to stop. I don't take any mixes out of the studio with me. I never listen to a work in progress unless, oh, there's, wow. a, unless there's a specific reason to. You know, if, I, if there's a decision to be made, I'll listen. Mm. But I don't want to listen to something over and over and over again and get used to it. Right. Because then I'll think that's how it goes. When in reality, if I don't listen to it and come back fresh and hear it, I may realize, oh, this part that sounded the right length yesterday is too long. Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't have known that if I kept drilling it into my head in the way that I liked on that one day. Mm-hmm. So there's a real benefit in stepping away and coming back mm-hmm. and seeing it fresh. There's a balance to be struck, for sure. If you can maintain some sense of normalcy at the same time as in your private sort of way, being this absolute nut really for this thing that you're this little kind of sculpture you're building in your in your back room that's kind of what it feels like but I but I do feel that wherever I am it always feels like I have this secret (laughs) you know I feel like you know I could just be at a party or like I could be at the beach or whatever but in the back of my mind I'm building this this thing at home and um, in some ways that's a cool feeling and in other ways that's an incredibly kind of isolating feeling because no one could see it yeah but it's like when i first came here i was like oh this is this is like life rehab like people come here to get better (laughs) (laughs) whatever it is you know everything's white and green like the the grass and the you know there's like more there's like exotic wildlife just coming and perching outside just as you're writing your lyrics of the um of the things you've got to produce and collaborate on, what's been the most fun for you outside of you as an artist? Hmm. Well, Andre 3000 springs to mind. And some of my work with Stara has been really fun. The most fun, I mean... Your most gratifying. Jay, I mean, maybe. working on 444 was incredibly gratifying, even though I didn't actually do that much. Yeah. I mean, in terms of, you know, musical input, there really wasn't a huge amount, but it was being in the room and being a part of a record being created and, and being an opinion that was driving where that record went, uh, one of many, yes. um, and helping Jay formulate whatever, even to just play a small part in that was just so fucking fun. And just his process showed me that there was a different process. You know, I could have loads of people being a committee and, 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 and take every opinion. What's that quote? Uh, Meghan Markle said it in an interview recently. Um, let uh, let uh, compliments and and criticisms flow down the same drain. Yeah. You know, amazing ability to do that. Yeah, presence of mind over over himself. And I imagine your voice was probably different than many of the voices in the room, which is interesting. Yeah, although probably the biggest, like the the person I learned the most from, aside from Jay, was No ID. He probably is the most truth. Telling, I mean, one of the most truth-telling people I've ever met, 
just in terms of, you know, he doesn't care <laughs> what the reaction is to what he's saying. He will just deliver the absolute whole truth. And that, I think, is part of the essence of 444. I think is, is no ideas yeah. next to Jay. The biggest influence on that record is, is no ID. Yeah, it's so helpful when someone will really reflect reality back. Yeah, at, at the cost of potentially of upsetting the person they're Absolutely. working Absolutely. It's a difficult um, road to walk, Yeah, but, but it's really what's necessary. And the reason so many successful artists work over time tend to diminish mm-hmm. is because the voices around them just start so true. nodding yes instead I mean, of... We know examples of that happening yeah. right now that it's, it's tough to... It's tough to watch when you know you love someone's music, but that is the way it is. It takes an immense strength of character to allow dissident voices into your session. And mine happens to be in my relationship, uh, which is very useful. You know, someone who will just be like, no, <laughs> I can't, that's not not hitting or that's, you keeps know. You, keeps you grounded. Well, yeah, and, and or just the encouragement of your authentic self, yes. you know. Tell me about the covers you're working on. Well, I've done this dance floor EP and the next thing is that I'm going to be releasing kind of studio versions of some of the covers I re- released over the year. Um, when I say released, I mean, I just played them on a whim on IG live streams and then they became, and then I look back and go, oh no, that actually, uh, you know, I made sort of cat slightly made that on my own so i'm gonna put that on this ep nice it started as just an opportunity to play music live because i didn't have enough songs that i wanted to play at the piano because you know a lot of my music stems from production exercises in, in a lot of ways so taking some of those back to the back to the keyboard doesn't always work as a piano song so i was like well you know then i put out a request to fans saying like you know what do you want me to hear so what do you want me to uh cover and uh, got overwhelmed with responses, read through literally all of them, and it was thousands. And genre-wise, what were the things that were sent to you? Like, what was the spectrum? I mean, every, literally everything. No, there wasn't, there wasn't um, you know, in terms of recorded songs, there was, there was every genre. But the ones I ended up picking out were just Nirvana, Stevie Wonder. I mean, they were like the heavy hitters, really, of songwriting. Because yeah. really, I was listening for the DNA of the songs. And yes. Could I actually perform them? And I think I'm attracted to the just the same, you know, when I say same, I mean, I'm attracted to pop music. Yeah. That's what my natural disposition is to listen to the best pop music. And I think the best pop music ever written, The Beatles, Nirvana, Billie Eilish. Yeah. Some of those songs, you know, Stevie Wonder, Frank Ocean, yeah. Radiohead, Bill Withers. I mean, that's like, it's like a team, isn't it? Yeah. So, talk about um, how the live show came together. I, it's some of the best live performances I've ever seen. Thank you. Have been thanks to you. Yeah, so. thanks for coming to our shows. Yeah, yeah. tell tell me how, how did it come to coming from a DJ background? I would not guess that the show that you do would be the show that you do. Right, because it's not got any. Um, backing tracks or any syncing or anything like that a lot of reasons right a lot of reasons <laughs> it's well very, yeah it's very specific what you're what what mm. what i've seen is a very specific thing i don't know anyone else who does what you and your group do 
Yeah, we started noticing those, you know, those little SPD pads. After we, it's like a little rolling pad that you can hit, that you can put samples on it, basically, like a, like an MPC, but for drummers. And uh, I remember we started using that. And then like a couple of years later, I started seeing all these other bands with, their th- with this little drum thing, um, which is a small thing, but that's what, that's how we got away from the computer. Is how we got away from Ableton, from from syncing, from MIDI clicks, from having to be dependent on a, the pulse of a computer, basically. Because as soon as that happened, we tried it, but as soon as it happened, Ben just didn't feel the same, and like none of our music sounded the same. Even though it was different to the records, like probably what would have been most faithful most faithful to records was playing to a MIDI click yes. with Ben with a head, yes. you know headphones, and but it didn't feel. You know, I'd done a lot of jamming in bands before. I'd played in a lot of different bands before I started making music. Just like in pubs or at school or... Cover bands. Cover bands, like just stuff, you know, like circuit stuff. Just learning to blend in with other musicians, you know, like how to not always be soloing, how to sometimes hold it down keyboard-wise. It's like learning lead or rhythm guitar. And... um, I knew I wanted to play like a band and actually me, Ben and Rob had been in a band at school. So I knew what it felt like to play with Ben and Rob where we weren't tied to anything. So suddenly it just felt like being in straitjackets. Um, so we just got away. I, I was militant about anything with, if there were other apps on this thing, it wasn't allowed on stage. Like if you could email on it, you, you're not having it on stage. So it became about, okay, so how do we... So we've got the drum pad, we've got the synths, they're the ones I use on the record. Rob has this magical ability to fill in any gap on a record. So like if we needed a guitar, he had it, but if we needed a cell, if we needed like a sample that had to come in at a certain point, he could he's just very good at multitasking, so he could do it all. If we needed a bass line, he was playing the Moog Taurus, like the Taurus 3 is amazing. I used that as the base for retrograde, so I just brought it from home and we used it on tour. So I'll say it was expensive. You know, I probably bought six Profit 08s, six of every keyboard to have three different rigs over the course of time and replacements. So every piece of gear we've got on stage, I've got three or four or five copies of. Mm. So took a while to make money. But, you know, once you get going, you know, you're a self-sufficient live act that can't go wrong unless one of these bits of gear blows up and even then I can just transition to something else. It can't just stop because a laptop broke. That's the other thing is that we were proof, like we were completely watertight when it came to, we can react to anything that goes wrong, but a computer can't. Yes. And there's nothing worse. And I've been on stage when a laptop fails and there's nothing worse than just three nerds standing over a laptop screen wondering why the music's not coming out. Like it just, it's just the worst image. So I just, you know, just, just went for that. So, but yeah, like in terms of how we developed this, the show, it was like divvying out parts, really. It was like, okay, so who can play what? And we've got three of us. And if we can't play everything, then we just won't play everything. And maybe the sound guy can do a couple of delays, but that's about it. So we kind of treated it like a dub band in a way. Like, you know, the, you've got sort of our sound guy had to be scientist or King Tubby and we would, the band. Yeah. Having seen you live and so loving the albums, once I saw you live, 
it sounded like the albums were the demos for the live show. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. And, it, I, and I remember you saying, why don't you yeah, just record the next ta- album? Because it takes on this whole other mm-hmm. thing mm-hmm. that's incredible when it's played live. It, just like the um, the added human element. Mm-hmm. Well, it's all the elements of human rather than just one. Yes. Right. But, but or the two. added human element of the interaction yes. of rhythm. Yeah. Do, do you know what I'm saying? It's like it's a like, conversation rather it's, than it's, a, yeah, Yes. Completely. Yes. Because, yeah. And it has a different life to it that... Mm-hmm. It's thrilling. Now, I don't know if that's only because I know the computer version mm-hmm. that hearing it released from the straitjacket is so thrilling. Yeah. I'm not sure. But I know that because yeah. I've, I've never heard, I don't think I've ever heard any of the music live before hearing the record. Mm-hmm. So I can't, do you yeah, know what I'm saying? Right. So I don't know. But I will say knowing the record, seeing it live, it's only better. It's funny because a lot of things... You know, there are some songs that I'd feel don't get better and, there's, and and we just choose the ones that do. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of bands just have to play the songs that don't translate that well live or because or they're the big songs, yeah. you know, or that are, we've been lucky. Uh, and also we've just, sometimes we just play the ones that don't translate that well. And, <laughs> we, you know, we've uh, not always made the right choices with songs. But I think I feel quite lucky. In a way, I would like to record an album where... It's just me, Ben and Rob playing the songs I've written. Obviously, that'll be a much longer process because you've got to write the song, write the album, then learn it, then play it, and then produce that. Yes. And at the time when we were doing Color and Anything, I remember you suggesting it. I was just like, I don't actually have time. I don't think I've got the, the headspace to be able yeah. to do that. I don't have the time, potentially the money, because, <laughs> yeah. you know, it's not cheap. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then also, I don't have the, I don't have any life force left. Like, I just was like drained. Yes. I was dying. I felt like yes. I was dying. Like, some, so some, I couldn't. I, I will couldn't say do it. someday. I hope we get to do that. Like, yeah, someday. I would, and seriously. The, and yeah. the way to do it is to essentially finish the album. Yeah, you would do exactly the same thing. What you do now is you finish an album, mm-hmm. and then you decide how you're going to play it live, and yeah, then you right. play it live. Right. The only difference will be when the record comes out. Exactly. But the process will be exactly the same. Everything will be so exactly true. the same. And to have that presence of yeah. mind to, to be like, that's going to be the way it goes, then yeah. yes. But yeah. I think well, at a time already, when you're you, becoming a, attached to all these demos, yeah. all, these, all these songs, yes. and the way they're produced and the way they sound and the way they hit, and it's yes. like, I was just becoming so attached to the production of these things. That I, couldn't, I couldn't allow... But then the other thing is that I quite enjoyed the fresh lease of life it gets when it becomes a live uh, adaptation. Absolutely. I quite enjoyed having this thing at home that sounds like that and then being able to take this very organic thing on the road and it feeling different and it being a surprise to people rather than it just sounding note for note the same thing as they've just heard at home. Do you ever learn anything about the songs when you play them live? Does your relationship to the music change? And I I sing them differently. And and actually, uh, I sing the melodies slightly differently live and... You know. It's funny how we adapt, like sometimes it'll even be an improvisation one night mm-hmm. that you get used to, and then you just start doing it that way, yeah. and then you just think that's how it goes. Yeah. It's like a, a lie that I start to believe, yeah. um, and that's great. That's kind of fine as well, because ultimately, you know, sometimes when you hear a musician sing a song like a Tom York or whatever, and, and you're like, I know this record inside out, so yes. when he sings it, it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to chime in with the exact thing that I've got in my mind, and when they sing it differently could be just because they've almost chinese whispered themselves uh over the course of two tours 
and now it sounds like this. Yeah. And it's nice to see the iterations of these songs over the years and how, how musicians re-identify with the songs. And, you know, it's like Joni Mitchell, she actually came to see us at the Troubadour, uh, which I probably told you about before, yes. but it was an unbelievable moment. And I remember her telling me that when she originally wrote Case of You, she didn't know how to tell the story even though she had told the story in the lyrics and, and on, the, on the record, but she told me that she, as she got older, she became a better storyteller in her delivery. And she now knew the correct emotion behind the things she'd written, almost like it, would, it was disembodied of that in, in its first incarnation. But as she got older, it, it, it was imbued with real depth and, Beautiful. you know, just Beautiful. emotion. And, and I think... That's happened in some ways to some of the songs I've written where I've realized their meaning way after I wrote them. Maybe because when you're writing them, it's coming more from the subconscious. So it's almost like a dream yeah. that you can reflect on later. Like it, the time you wake up from a dream, it just seems like surreal. But yeah. if you look back years later, it's like, oh, that meant, yeah. I know exactly what that meant. Exactly, yeah. There's that. And also I think maybe that it's an intellectualization in the moment. Unless you were just freestyling lyrics straight from the subconscious it would be difficult to not premeditate these lyrics i mean it is they are by definition premeditated so you know there's a there's a sense that you've intellectualized what you feel and therefore there is a natural disembodiment from the feeling to the lyric in your explanation of it it may not always be perfect and that is our job in a way is to articulate but then later on once you know the lyrics, once you, they're in you and you'll never forget them, they're muscle memory, then the feeling can come through them um, much easier. Yeah. So the first time I ever sing songs, I'm, I'm not very good at singing them. They don't come out feeling integral or authentic. Mm. It's when I've sung them for a couple of years or even 10 years, that's when you're like, oh, he's now a conduit. Those, those lyrics are a conduit for, the, for what's going on. Beautiful. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, I mean, it's been absolutely my pleasure. I, I, and I've made, I honestly, seeing you again and to actually in the place where we recorded Color and Anything, I have been having almost a, I mean, it's been, honestly, it's so pivotal for me to come back here again and, and, you know, where my relationship started, where my album was made, where I went through all those changes and in front of you and, and with, in, in some ways with your guidance and with what's happened since, it's so big for me to come back here and it feels so good. And I, I think it's almost felt like therapy. It's just unlocked a couple of little like, oh yeah, and then, and then that, and then, you know, and then I've, I've been talking a lot, but it's because I've been almost piecing together memories and, and, and going, oh, this is really important. Beautiful. <laughs> you know. I'm so happy to be on the journey with you. Thanks for having me on, yeah. <laughs> Thanks to James Blake for sharing so much of his journey and creative process with Rick. You can hear all of our favorite James Blake songs on a playlist at brokenrecordpodcast.com, along with the original songs that he covered on his new EP. And be sure to subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash brokenrecordpodcast, where you can find extended cuts of our new and old episodes. Broken Record is produced with help from Leah Rose, Jason Gambrell, Martin Gonzalez, Eric Sandler, and is executive produced by Mia Lobel. Broken Record is a production of Pushkin Industries, and if you like Broken Record, please remember to share, rate, and review our show on your podcast app. 
Our theme music's by Kenny Beats. I'm Justin Richmond. Peace. Musora is your access to online music lessons for guitar, piano, drums, and singing. This is your chance to reignite some old musical passions or pick up an instrument for the first time. Connect with more than 100 of the world's best teachers and musicians. You'll get seven days totally free to try it out. And then it's just $30 a month, less than a single private lesson. I mean, why do we do Broken Record? Not just because we love hearing from great musicians. We do it because we think that there is something beautiful about the appreciation of music. Don't you think we need more of that in our lives these days? That's the mission of Musora, to inspire, educate, and connect musicians. Enjoy unlimited personal support, weekly live streams, student lesson plans. It's like having a personal music teacher, only much, much better. Just go to musora.com, M-U-S-O-R-A.com, to start a new musical journey today. The tradition of breaking tradition continues with the return of the unconventional awards from T-Mobile for Business at Mobile World Congress. This is an event that celebrates innovators whose bold actions took their industries to new places. If that sounds like you and you're a T-Mobile for Business customer, enter today. If you win, you'll be publicly honored amongst some of the most influential leaders in industry. And me, I'll be there too. Enter now at tmobile.com slash unconventional awards. See you there. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your your perfect home sweet home.